Well, good morning. Yeah, it's a little bit better. Not too terribly impressed, but uh, it's early for some of you. If you're still kind of in that college mode or weekend mode, I'll give you a little bit of a reprieve. My name is Paul, the lead pastor here, and um, today we're walking into uh, the middle or the front third of our 72-week series of looking at the Gospel of Mark and seeing who in that in that gospel, who is this Jesus that we get our identity, that we receive our salvation from, the one who makes us whole. And uh, today we're looking at Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. And uh, I got up, as I was wrestling through it this week, I was really trying to figure out, how do I feel about this? How do I feel about this, this section of scripture? Because it made me uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable because uh, just in this season of the church for Missio Dei, it's, it's, it's forcing me to trust God. It's forcing me, thank you, God bless you, Mark, it's moving. Um, it is forcing me to say, Paul, how, how much faith do you really have in God? How much faith do I really have in, in the person of Jesus Christ? Because honestly, I feel like I do pretty good on my own. Because I think most of us kind of function from that. We, we, we may, because the, the vast majority of the United States, if you look at George Barna, uh, a great statistician of the church, he says that the vast majority of the United States, about 80% of the United States, Proclaim to be Christians. 80%. But I wonder, in those people's lives, if they're anything like me, where in the living, the day in and the day out of their life, if they really trust Jesus Christ for their breath, their life, trust Him with their family, trust Him with their junk, trust Him with their addiction, trust Him with their, their success. Do we really trust Jesus in those low times, as well as those high times in our life. Because as I look at myself, I'm not sure I really have true, full, vibrant faith. 24-7, 365 days a year, I'm not sure I have that kind of faith. I have a good Sunday faith. I have a good faith when I need to kind of work on it, or when I preach, I, I got good faith, you know, it kind of comes across, hey, Paul's got his stuff together. We need to be more like the pastor. Oh, I'm not sure that's, you should always take my, my lead on this, because I struggle just as much as you. You know, in, in, in Hebrews, it says this, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I look through uh, scripture, and I see that faith is this vague thing that you know preachers often preach about. Uh, it, it's a, it's an elusive word that doesn't seem like we can really put our our hands around and just really grasp this is what it is. And sometimes, honestly, in my life, it seems absent. And as I look through scripture, I look at people like Abraham, and I go, "You got to be kidding." How can you do it? How can you be a hundred 
plus years old and hear God say, Hey, Abraham, through you, you are going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham is going, Are you serious? I'm taking some good old New Testament Viagra. And you're saying that I am going to be the father of many nations? I'm a hundred years old. And his wife goes, yeah, Abe, good luck with that one, buddy. Through me, I'm going to be the father of many nations? And then you look at, you look at Moses as he is leading the children of Israel through Egypt towards the Red Sea. A whole sea of army people coming with chariots, coming at full force. And the people going, hey, what are you doing? You brought us out here. And, Abraham, and Moses is going, trust. Trust me. Some of the ancient rabbis, when they talk about Moses and the children of Israel going into the sea, they talk about that it wasn't until the children of Israel walked into the sea and it was up to their nose that the sea split. Because it required them to have tremendous faith that God will divide the great sea and give them dry ground to walk through on. And I go, that's just not me. I've heard preachers just say, you just got to have a little bit more faith. Just kind of fill it up. You know, if you're just kind of halfway, just fill her up kind of faith. And I'm going, serious? That's, that's all it is? Just kind of have a fill her up kind of gas station kind of mentality? Just fill it up? How do you conjure that up? Because I don't know if I could pull that off. I don't know if I can pull off that kind of faith. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a story of two people who are at probably some very low times in their lives and wondering whether or not God will actually come true to his promises, to his word. Is this the God that I can cling to when it feels like my life is just shipwrecked? This morning we're going to look at the display of God's power in this text by looking at two different segments of society. One on one hand is focused on an outcast woman who's been suffering with this disastrous, this devastating hemorrhage for the past 12 years. This hemorrhage had made her ceremonially unclean. According to the New Testament, because she was bleeding regularly for 12 years, she could not be entering into any kind of temple activity. She was unclean. No man could touch her. No man. Her family even could not touch her because then they would be rendered unclean. This is a woman that has been lonely, has been an outcast, left to herself, alone, asking the question, God, why? The Talmud, which is uh, the rabbi's 
discussing what the, the Old Testament really means, what the first five books of the Bible means, uh, came up with no less than 11 cures for this woman. And she had, it, this section talks about how this woman had been under a tremendous amount of disservice from the doctors. But there were 11 cures that were supposedly going to take care of this for her. And nothing worked. But before we go any farther, let's look at this story. And let's look through the lenses of faith. Looking at Mark chapter 5. Starting at verse 21. Verse 21. And if you need a Bible, we've got some Bibles along uh, the aisles, page 697. I encourage you, follow along as we look at what does, what does true faith look like? And what does the power of God look like when we have this feeble kind of faith? Verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over, again crossed over, by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she might be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12, was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus. She came up behind him and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see all the people crowding around you, the disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what what had happened to her, came and fell at her feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they had said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, 
Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and the mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the little girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus had just crossed over the sea. He silenced the storm, the raging storm. He had authority over all of creation. He went over to Decapolis, where they were immediately greeted by a demon-possessed man who called himself Legion, because he was possessed by thousands of evil spirits. And Jesus cast out the demon, and he came, Jesus came back over the sea, and was greeted by this huge crowd of people. They were hungry for more. They wanted to see this healer, this Jesus. And out of that crowd came a man, Jairus. Jairus was the synagogue leader. And this meant that he was probably a man of high prestige, very well known in this little community, because he was the religious leader in that city. He was like the church leader. And everybody had such high respect for him because he knew the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, inside and out, completely memorized. He was the one that managed the whole uh, worship service that when the people came together in the synagogue, he managed the, the worship. He was also the one who acted like the principal, who discipled the children in the way of Moses. He was the religious leader. He was astute. He was learned. He knew his stuff and he followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Moses. He followed that God to a T. And suddenly Jairus comes, falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Master, my little girl, she's dying. Would you please come with me? Just hold her hand. Give her life. I've seen what you've done with others. Just maybe you can do it for my little girl. The crowd was silenced. This prominent, prestigious religious leader had fallen at the feet of Jesus. The Jesus that he more than likely accused of heresy a couple chapters earlier. That religious leader is now at the foot of Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing how the story of Jairus is just often like a lot of our stories? 
It seems like when life has hit the fan, our life is an absolute mess, and we come to the end of ourselves, that at that point we go, Jesus, I have expended all other resources. I've done everything that I can. I've heard about Jesus. I've seen him in the lives of other people. I've heard the testimony. Let's give it a shot. And Jesus immediately said what? Let's go. Take me to your house. And the fun thing for me is that Jesus, it says immediately he got up and left. And the crowd followed. But Jesus in his mind goes, Jairus, I am going to take you on a journey. A journey where you're not just trusting me for an instant miracle to give your dying daughter life again so that she may be whole. I'm going to give you a picture of what true life in me can really be about. And I'm sure, you know, I look at my daughter, who is probably the cutest thing. She was even cuter before she cut her own hair. But she is the cutest thing out there. And I'll tell you that if my little girl, my little four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Gracie, would ever, ever be lying on her bed, I would do whatever it takes. I would do whatever it takes to see this little girl whole. We would spend whatever we can. We would do as many benefits as we can. This little girl is my baby girl. Anything happens to my little boy, Isaac, I'll die for him. Just to see him healthy. To see him live. So I can understand this father going, Jesus, listen, I've done whatever I can. I've done it all. We've seen all the doctors. I've got to trust you. Because I've seen it happen in the other lives. So I can identify with this man. And inside this father had to be a sense of urgency. A real sense of, he said, yes, let's go. And you can imagine his walk was not just this leisurely, all right, cool. We've got the master, let's, let's go, come on. We'll take the whole crowd. He's like, all right, you said yes, let's go. And we're going to go at the speed of light right now. Let's go. If it's, in, if it's possible, Jesus, let's leave all these people behind. Let's go. Because if I could find a donkey, we'd hop on it and we'd take a taxi and go to town. But Jesus said immediately they got up and left. And suddenly Jairus' world stopped again. It stopped when he found out there was nothing else he could do. And it stopped again when Jesus stopped. It said that the crowd was just pressing in on all sides. The Greek just gives this picture that Jesus could barely move. So the pace of their their going to Jairus' house was just slow. It was like a turtle's pace going. And Jairus was just inside of him. It was just probably eating him up. You've got to be kidding. Come on. We've got we to expedite this more quickly. But then suddenly Jesus stopped. And he turned around and said, 
Who touched me? Who, who touched my clothes? And the disciples are going, Jesus. Come on. Look at the people. Who touched your clothes? Ridiculous question. Jesus said, no, no, no. Who touched me? Who intentionally touched my clothes? And Jairus, as a father, is going to go, Jesus, for the love of all that's holy, giddy up. This is ridiculous that you're stopping here asking this silly question. Who touched your clothes? This woman has used all means to find a cure. She had gone to the doctors. There were, there were cures like this. Listen to this one. It's ridiculous. Take the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus the same. Let them be bruised together, in other words, press them together, and given in wine to the woman that has this issue of blood. If it doesn't benefit, if this does not benefit, take of Persian onions three pints, boil them in wine, and give her drink and say, Arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two roads meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let some come, someone come from behind her and frighten her. It's like she has a hiccups. And say, arise from thy flux. So she is, she's gone through those, those things. On top of that, here's an, another one. It's kind of gross. In the same place, the Talmud uh, recommended that the afflicted woman carry a barley corn, just a little piece of barley, which had been taken from the, the droppings of a white female donkey. So this woman had to dig through some donkey poop, and not just any donkey poop, a white female donkey. And she had to carry around, you know, fish around and find a little barley corn, and she had to carry it around, hoping that that would be the cure. So she was totally humiliated, gone through all these kind of things. And she had come to the end of her road. And it said that she had gone to the doctor's they had given her all these kind of things, and in fact, she has suffered at their expense. She had not gotten better. She had gotten worse. Carrying around a smelly piece of barley corn from donkey poop. And she grew worse. And she's at this point where she heard about Jesus. And she decided to press on. 27 and 29 say this. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, if I just touch it, The bleeding might stop. And immediately, Mark uses that word over and over again, immediately the bleeding stopped and she felt whole in her whole body. It stopped. 
This poor woman, after that, did the best that she could to escape attention. And I'm sure she, she crept up to Jesus, touched it, hoping that that would, that would work. And shocked as Jesus kept on walking. I'm whole. And then Jesus stops and said, who touched me? Who touched me? And as she's crouched down in total awe and amazement, she hears Jesus say, Who had the faith to touch me? Who has feeble faith in this crowd where they trusted even the hem of my clothes for healing? The woman's world stopped. Jesus realized that his healing power had gone from his body, and he asked, Who touched my clothes? And Jairus must have been just irritated from this interruption. Come on, Jesus. My daughter is dying and you're worried about someone touching you in this crowd? And imagine this woman's heart just throbbing, just beating, both with fear and with joy. Her eyes just teared up with just emotion. And Christ was calling her to stand up before the crowd, but not for His sake. He called her to stand for her sake and for the sake of Jairus and for some who were in the crowd. And she stood up also because for our sake. Her faith was uninformed. It was presumptuous. And in many ways it was superstitious. But it was a real faith. And Christ honored her imperfect faith. And God does the same thing still today. Beginning faith is often uninformed and mixed with a tremendous amount of errors of who is Jesus and how does Christianity really work and what about this Trinity thing? And was he really, really virgin birth? Come on. But we often enter with uninformed faith. And however, such foggy understandings are often the beginning of a deep, informed trust and faith in God. And we can take courage from this woman who was totally uninformed, but experienced something very real. One does not. You do not have to have it all together. Hear me say that. You do not have to have it all together before coming to Jesus. You don't have to have your life figured out. You don't have to have your addiction taken care of. You don't have to have your marriage perfect or the job just right or all this stuff in order before coming to Jesus. In fact, I'm pretty sure he'd prefer you not to think that you've got it together. Because he'd like to do the work with you. This is why a child 
can come to Christ. This is why God often saves those who virtually have no theology, no understanding of God. The point is that faith, a faith that pleases God does not belong to only the informed. The woman's faith was not only ignorant, but it was also selfish. She wanted health. But she did not especially care about the one who gave her health. This is often typical for our beginnings of faith. We want to come to Him because of some problem, of some junk. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's an addiction issue. Maybe it's a marital issue. Maybe it's a relationship issue. Maybe it's whatever it is. We just come to Jesus because we want our stuff fixed. But we have no regard for the healer. We have no regard for Christ. And the drama here is beautifully instructive. Jesus was jostled about by a multitude of people. People who were pushing and shoving, trying to get near to him, trying to have their stuff fixed. And what does he do? He stops. St. Augustine says, Flesh presses, but faith touches. So in a sea of millions of hands, Christ will see the one that is raised in faith. Though it may be like an infant's and imperfect. That's the kind of faith that Jesus Christ sees. The kind of faith that raises his hand that's imperfect and not together. The other thing that we see here in this drama is that Christ instructs real faith even when it's imperfect. Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your sufferings. He was tender with her. In fact, this is the only recorded instance of Jesus using the word daughter. This woman hadn't been touched in years. She'd been an outcast. She'd been abused by the doctors. And tenderly he came up and said, Daughter, it's your faith that's made you whole. Your faith has made you whole. Not the doctors. Not that barley corn that you have in your pocket. It's your faith that makes you whole. Her faith may have been as tiny as a mustard seed, but Jesus saw it. He honored it. He developed it. And I'm not sure that many of us would appreciate Jesus calling us out in a crowd. The American church is uh, well known for its anonymity in corporate worship. We kind of like our personal 
times of worship, just me and Jesus. But Jesus stopped her in the middle of a crowd and said, Hey, Jairus, I want you to watch this. The rest of you, I want you to watch this. And he didn't allow her to remain anonymous. He called her out. Why did he do this? He did it for one for her own sake. He wanted her. He wanted to be to her something other than just a healer. He wanted her to be in this saving relationship. He wanted to be her savior and her friend. He wanted her to look into his face, to feel his tenderness, and to hear his loving words to call her a daughter. But he also did it for the sake of Jairus, the freaking out father. His daughter was close to death, and he needed all the encouragement that he could get. It's bad enough that the crowd had had stopped their their progress, but now this woman had to interfere and stop Jesus completely. And then it got ugly. News came that his daughter had died. And his friend said, Jesus, Jairus, just quit bothering the teacher. Just leave him alone. It's over. Let's go home. And Jairus had to make a decision. Do I trust this kind of Savior who is able to heal a woman from just touching his clothes? It says here in verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue leader, do not be afraid. Just believe. It's ridiculous. Think about it. You just got news from your best friends that your daughter has died. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus had challenged Jairus not to believe in him for healing, but he challenged Jairus to believe in him for a resurrection. This was a radical call and a radical development of Jairus' faith. It's one thing to pray for your child's healing, but it's a whole different thing to stand over a cold body and to pray for an immediate resurrection. Jesus was saying, be believing and keep on believing. In other words, you have had a certain amount of faith when you came to me. You had faith when you came to me. And your faith has helped you when you saw what I did for this woman. Don't quit. Keep on Believing. Keep pressing forward. And Jairus did. Stumbling home. 
probably in tears, devastated as a father. Jesus had set the stage for the resurrection of this little girl and the elevation of faith. When they got to the home of this religious leader, all the paid mourners were already there, weeping, crying. And I'm sure that the mother was in there just beside herself, wondering what has taken Jairus so long to get back. Because now her little girl is dead, lying lifelessly on a bed, And Jesus walks in and goes, Why are you mourning? She's only asleep. See, real death is a separation of the soul from God. Real death is the separation of the soul from God, not from the body. Not the body from the soul. Real death is separation from from God. That is death. When you don't have this connection. And so Jesus is saying, listen, she's just sleeping. And watch. He cleared the room, invited his three closest disciples and the father and mother to come. They shut the door. And Jesus, with all tenderness, took the little girl's hand. And he says, little girl. And to be more literal, it says, little lamb. Little lamb, get up. Little lamb, get up. Baby girl, get up. Can you hear the words as it falls on this little girl's cold and lifeless ears and body? Can you suddenly, just imagine, all of a sudden the eyes fluttering and opening wide. And the first thing that she sees is Jesus. And the faces of her mother and father. And then the three apostles going, Whoa, that's Jesus. So what is this Christ? Who is this Jesus that gives life? Who heals a woman that has been a a social outcast and can bring life to even the dead. This Jesus is the all-powerful. He made the raging sea instantly flat with one word. He cast out a legion of evil spirits with another word. He healed an outcast woman without a word. And he tenderly raised the little girl. He's understanding. 
He's loving. He's gentle. He's inviting. And He's God. The little girl was spared from death, but wasn't given a total reprieve. The woman was healed for now, but she'll, she'll face more ailments as she gets older. Faith, however, is able to hold on in the face of death, knowing that God has conquered death in the resurrection of Christ. Faith can hold on in the face of death, in the face of addiction, in the face of marital problems, in the face of illness, can hold on knowing that Christ has conquered death. By coming to new life. W.H. Vanstone, right, says this. It's at the end. As he moves about, this Jesus leaves behind him a trail of transformed scenes and changed situations. Fishermen no longer at their nets. Sick people restored to health. Critics confounded. A storm stilled. Hunger assuaged. A little dead girl raised to life. Jesus' presence is an active and instantly transforming presence. He is never the mere observer of a scene or the one who waits upon events, but always the transformer of the scene and the initiator of events. God is the initiator of events. And for some of you here this morning, God is initiating. He's moving and saying, do you have faith? Are you willing to come before me today, fall at your knees, say, God, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my children. I trust you with my stuff. I trust you with my finances. God, I've done it all. I've tried everything. And it still sucks. It's not fixed. I've jumped through all the hoops. I've read all the books. I've watched Oprah. She still doesn't cure anything. Jesus, you have got to be it. Is God saying something this morning to you? The God who initiates. The God who speaks to you and can heal. The God who can calm the storm in your life. Who can heal a broken body. Some of you know my story. Some of you have no clue and that's alright. Age 8. Sexually abused by a favorite uncle. You want to talk about scarring that goes deep? Where there's just tremendous pain? And you look for hope and healing in just anything and everything? Do 
trying to find healing in yourself. Man, I can just make it. I can just do it. I just need to push on. I just need to be determined. And you fall off the wagon again, and you just keep on pushing, keep on trying one more time, and you just get to that point where it's like, come on, this is ridiculous. I am pushing myself into depression. It's getting ugly. I'm feeling weight. My life is dark. It's hollow. Come on, there's got to be something more than that. And for me, age 18, 19, Jesus Christ initiated something beautiful. Offered wholeness to a broken man. It's a long road of healing. But where Jesus passes, he doesn't leave the scene without touching, without offering wholeness. The question this morning is are you willing to respond? Because all of us, no matter where you're at, men, I know it's even harder for you because you're going, I got my junk together. I don't need another man telling me. Come on. Put down the guard for a little bit, would you? All of us have brokenness. Some of us are trying to do it without a Savior, without God. Some of us have started off trusting and stepped back and tried to do it on our own. This morning, what is God asking you to do? How is He asking you to respond? For some of you, you need to look at the person to your right and left and say, hey, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Because I don't get this. And you may have been doing church for a long time. Some of you need to take that next step of faith and say, God, I'm ready. I give it all. Really, I give it all because I don't know what else to do. A couple weeks ago, we had a beautiful time of prayer in the back during our next set of worship. And we were able to pray with six or seven different people and about the health issues, about. Um, Seasons in life. About what is God saying to me now? We're going to offer that again. I'll be in the back. Nathan, if you're around here somewhere, wherever he is, Nate's going to be in the back. Chad will be back there. If you need somebody to pray with, and we take it seriously, if you need, if you, scares the living daylights for you to come back and just say, hey, I don't know what it is, but can you pray for me? Take somebody with you. We're not going to do any kind of voodoo magic or anything. 
We're just going to go with you before God. Ask God to speak to you in your life right now. If it's for healing, I can't wait for that first miracle. Because God still heals. So I'm going to pray. If you need somebody just to pray for you. Seriously. Don't be ashamed. Meet us in the back. And uh, we'll see what kind of feeble faith, what God can do with that kind of feeble faith. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And uh, how you can do amazing things with uninformed faith and feeble faith and how it often requires us to come to you in all humility, often with fear. But God, I look to the woman who reached out in faith and how there was just tremendous joy and there was just tremendous fear. And I'm sure she had to be asking, who is this God? Who is this Christ that is able to heal my broken body? God, I pray that this morning you'll be faithful as you have been in your scriptures even today in 2008 where you continue to be the God of healing and wholeness and health and salvation today. So God, I pray for uh, that man, that woman, who has more questions than answers. Has tried everything. God, I pray this morning, Lord, that you you be their salvation, that you be their healing, their wholeness. God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you heal us today, whether that be emotional, physical, spiritual pain? Would you take our imperfect faith and increase it. And God, my prayer is that this morning that you, above all, are glorified. God, through all of this, Lord, that you are even placed higher in our lives. So God, hear our prayers. Be with the people as a Seek prayer from each other as we go before you. May our eyes just be opened and enlightened because of our interaction this morning with you through the word of God, your precious gift. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.